It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Will Britons be allowed to holiday abroad this year? Whether they can or not, hotel quarantine is being introduced next week to protect the UK from new variants. Until you know the route out of uh, lockdown, which we can't know until we have more data, more information on vaccines as, as well. Please don't go ahead and book holidays for something which, at this stage, is illegal to actually go and do, whether it's here or abroad. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the government's hotel quarantine plans, as mentioned by the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps at the top and why it is proving so complex and how this plays into the debate about holidays. Chief political correspondent Jim Picard and leisure industries reporter Alice Hancock will explain all. Later on, we'll be asking whether Keir Starmer's leadership is stalling just as he reaches the one-year anniversary of his leadership. Should Labour be further ahead in the polls? Is his strategy right? And does he face a challenge from the left? Chief political correspondent Robert Shrimsley and special guest Sienna Rogers from the Labourlist website will discuss. Jim and Alice, welcome back to the pod. Good morning. Hi, Seb. Well, with all this talk about holidays and the sun getting a bit brighter and the days a bit longer, everyone's turning their minds towards the spring and the summer and that opportunity to leave our homes and get a bit of fresh air somewhere different. So, Jim, I'm going to ask you first, what are your dreams for a holiday this year, if it happens at all? The dreams would be to be in the Maldives or somewhere. The reality is I've booked a lighthouse overlooking the sea and it's in England and that's in August. It's going to be lovely. That sounds very nice. I've been watching a lot of Rick Stein's Cornwall, which is a 15-part series clearly filmed by the BBC to fill everyone's viewing schedules during lockdown. And um, I've been very much enticed at the prospect of going down to Cornwall. So at the very least, it feels like an Airbnb there at some point will be realistic. Alice, what about you? I don't think I can compete with Jim's lighthouse. We managed to escape to Italy in September last year, but my hopes of European holidays are fading fast. So we've got a cottage in Derbyshire booked first week in July, which I fear may be punchy, but we'll see. Well, that's my birthday, so I hope it's not punchy and that we are able to do something happy by that point. But on that topic, let's move into the main discussion of the week. Weeks after it was first announced, the Johnson government is finally bringing in hotel quarantine for thousands of passengers arriving to the UK. Those coming from 33 countries on a red list will have to pay £1,750 to spend 10 days in one of the fine establishments around airports. The aim is to stop new variants of COVID-19 from entering the country, particularly those like the South African strain that may prove a little more resistant to vaccination. The government has put high penalties on those who do not follow the rules, as Health Secretary Matt Hancock set out to MPs this week. Anyone who lies on the passenger locator form and tries to conceal that they've been in a country on the red list in the 10 days before arrival here will face a prison sentence of up to 10 years. I make no apologies for the strength of these measures. 
because we're dealing with one of the strongest threats to our public health that we've faced as a nation. So Jim, to begin, this hotel quarantine plan has been in gestation for some time and it follows much of the policy making we've seen from the Johnson government, which is it takes a long time for them to come to a decision, then the decision is made, then the implementation takes even longer. And we get to the point where lots of people are asking, why are we doing hotel quarantine just for these 33 countries? Why isn't it happening for all arrivals? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most convoluted policies we've seen since the start of the coronavirus crisis. It sort of reminds me of the old Lord Palmerston quote about only three people actually understand it. In his case, Schleswig Holstein and the prince consort who's dead, the German professor who's gone mad, and I who've forgotten all about it. Because if you go back to the very beginning of this, back in February or March last year, they originally introduced quarantine for people coming in from China and northern Italy. And then they sort of threw up their hands and said, well, actually, the disease has already reached this country. So why bother? And they dropped it altogether for three months. And then you'll remember in June, they brought in quarantine, but they set up this very complicated system of green, red, amber. And if you're on a green country, you didn't have to quarantine. But if you're on a red country, then you did. But then they sort of introduced all these tweaks along the way as well. So there was a point in December when they cut quarantine from 14 days to 10 days. They created a whole load of exemptions, such as actors and journalists. Do you remember there was that weird thing where they said high net worth individuals who were going to create loads of jobs, they could come through without quarantine. And then they sacked all that off in January. And then they brought in this new, hugely complicated scheme again. So people could be forgiven for being utterly confused. And on your question of, is it enough to bring the hotel quarantine for just new strains of coronavirus? I think what the government would say is that There's this impression out there that everyone in the world has hotel quarantine and Britain's really late. Actually, it's only happening in about half a dozen countries such as New Zealand, Taiwan, Hong Kong. It goes back to the usual point, which is if you brought it in for everyone coming in from everywhere, then you have quite major economic damage. And there will always be some people, ministers say, who still need to keep coming in. But I think what we might see in the coming weeks, they say they're going to update it every Thursday. And I think as these strains from South Africa and Brazil appear in more and more countries. I think they're now in 41. That list, which is currently 33, will start increasing. So Alice, how have the government's relations with the industry been here? That it was only at the last minute when deals were actually signed with hotels and there's been lots of debates about insurance, who's going to be responsible. If somebody catches COVID and sadly falls seriously ill, hotels don't want to have to be responsible for that. But you've got that element, you've got the cost of this thing, which is still going to put a hefty whack on the taxpayer as well as individuals. The travel industry has been massively frustrated with the government. They've been going week to week on the government updating the list over the summer last year. As Jim pointed out, they're having to refund customers with seven days notice after having no revenues. They're trying to bring back staff to deal with the customer refunds, but they don't have any money to pay the staff. You know, it's a total nightmare for them. And as a result, obviously, relations already pretty frayed before the government say to hotels, okay, we're going to implement these hotel quarantines. We need this number of rooms. They so far have 16 hotels signed up covering about 4,600 rooms. And of the Matt Hancock quarantine package at £1,750, 50 to £80 of that per night goes to a hotel. So you're looking at about £800 to hotels. There's some confusion over what the rest of the money is going on. There's obviously security testing and coach transfers. But the three meals a day 
is included in the money to the hotels. So there's feeling amongst hotels that could they be getting more when the government is expecting to shut off their hotels for exclusive use of quarantine. And then there's the insurance point. Are they putting their staff at risk by hosting these people that could have the disease? So there's a lot of things that will still need to be ironed out in the coming week. And we've already seen the booking platform for this quarantine stay. It's already crashed and needs to be rejigged and set up again today. So it's not without its pitfalls already. And I think the other question about all this, Jim, is you said that that list of 33 is going to expand. That obviously seems like a given over the coming weeks. What's going to be the exit strategy from this? But obviously the UK is making great strides with its vaccination. Past 13 million people have received a first jab. It is going to hit that mid-February target of vaccinating the top four most vulnerable groups by Monday. But you can see a situation developing quite quickly where the UK is doing well in its vaccination. It gets the over 50s vaccinated by the summer. But but there are many more strains popping up elsewhere. And you could see this hotel quarantine lasting for quite some time because once you brought it in, how do you get rid of it? You know, there's been talk of the Home Office having an app to track people as opposed to putting them into hotels. But given the fact they've had so many problems with the hotel quarantine and the NHS tracking app, that feels like just another technical disaster waiting to happen. This hotel quarantine system is marked to go at least till the end of March. And I think we'll probably go a fair bit further. The thing to explain as well, which we haven't particularly done, is that currently there are no flights between countries such as South Africa and Brazil to the UK at the moment. And residents of those countries are also totally banned from coming here. So what we're talking about is British residents and citizens basically wanting to come home. And they are the ones who are going to be in this hotel quarantine. No one is allowed to go on holiday abroad at the moment. The number of people normally coming to the UK is 250,000 a day. They've got it down to somewhere between 15 and 20,000 a day, according to Boris Johnson. So we're in this very limited hotel quarantine for the moment. Where we're going to be in three months' time, it's really hard to predict because as ministers keep saying on the radio, it depends not only on the speed of the UK's own vaccination programme, but it also depends on the speed of other countries' programmes. And then on top of that, you have the whole question of, will new mutations turn up, which are even more scary? Will the current mutations spread even more quickly? This is why you have ministers saying, they don't say don't book a holiday, but they say, I would hold off from doing it right now. So in terms of exit strategy, there was all this talk about vaccination passports. Now, the tricky bit with that is firstly, because it's not mandatory to have a vaccination, they don't want to prejudice against people who choose not to have one for whatever reason. And I think secondly, at a time where only the most vulnerable people and the oldest people are getting vaccinated, if ministers popped up and said, well, we're going to give vaccination passports so that pensioners can go on holiday, you know, there'd be a huge fairness issue for people under 50 saying, well, what about us? Especially when you've seen younger people really taking the brunt in sort of social and economic terms into lockdowns. So it's a question they're going to have to resolve. They can't resolve it right now. But we've also had a significant backlash as well over these plans. There's been a number of conservatives, including two former attorney generals, who've said breaking the rules and getting these long jail sentences is over the top. Charles Walker, a Tory grandee, said this to the BBC in response to Matt Hancock. Are you really seriously suggesting, Secretary of State, that we've got enough prison capacity to start locking up 19-year-old silly kids for 10 years? What a stupid thing to say. I mean, a really stupid thing to say that demeans his office and his position around the cabinet table. 
Well, Alice, that kind of anger you heard from Charles Walker, I think, speaks to the frustration amongst many conservatives, those who have got one eye on the economy, about the state of the UK's tourism industry and what's going to happen this summer. What's your prognosis on what things are going to look like for either holidays at home or holidays abroad, regardless of the hotel quarantine situation? I wish I had a crystal ball to know more for the travel industry. They're in absolute consternation. They've been relying on a decent summer this year. Most companies had accepted that 2021 was not going to be a wild comeback, but they did hope that they would be able to get some holidays booked in. They could recover to 60 to 80% of 2019 levels, pull in some revenues. I mean, TUI is nursing huge losses. It's already had to go to the German government three times to get billions of euros with state-backed loans to see it through. And losing a second summer could push the industry really to collapse. I know we hear this a lot across many industries, but the travel industry is a particularly interesting one because it's been effectively shut down by the closure of borders and the lack of international travel. But without high street premises of, say, your average retailer or the hospitality businesses, they can't claim government grants in the same way. So they've actually fallen between the gaps of getting any government support. And they're now facing, you know, the closure of their industry for another high season. And the summer really is the time they make hay. So by the end of this year, we could see a much, much smaller industry, much tighter capacity and potentially higher prices of summer holidays for those of us trying to book in 2022. And finally, Jim, this really speaks to, I think, the outlook for the whole economy here. We know Boris Johnson is taking a very gradual approach to opening up the economy. Next week is the key one when they look at all the data and everything is trending in the right direction with infections down to their lowest level since the beginning of December. Deaths are still very high, still hundreds a day, but they are thankfully falling. The vaccination rates are going well. And so after next week, we will then get the roadmap for exiting lockdown. But those Tories who want to get things going sooner are probably going to be disappointed. And it feels as if that debate between the health implications of COVID and the economic side, it feels as if Boris Johnson is sticking very much to the health side now because he doesn't want to have a the lockdown. And he's concluded that even if it's going to mean tough times for the tourism industry, for the hospitality industry, he'd rather go slower now to open things and keep them open for good. Yeah, that's exactly right, Seth. The feeling in number 10 is very clearly that there cannot be another lockdown. That is the driving purpose behind what Boris Johnson is doing at the moment, which is just to avoid at all costs having to go through this again. And if that means holding the tiller a little firmer for a little longer, if it means being cautious for longer, that is what they're going to do. And I think every newspaper in this country is trying to predict what speed, what elements of the lockdown are going to happen. It's it's a sort of daily game in Fleet Street. The logic here is that it's going to be more or less the reverse of how we went into lockdown. So it's not surprising that outdoor stuff is going to be eased before indoor stuff. We're going to be able to play football outside before we can go in a nightclub. These are not surprising things. But I think what is also true is I think some people will be surprised by the extent by which there will still be constraints and caution. You know, people advised to stay away from each other, advised to wear masks in certain situations right through potentially the summer. But we don't have long to wait for those actual details. February the 22nd is the day. And at that point, we will know an awful lot more. Jim and Alice, thank you very much. Is Keir Starmer doing a good job as opposition leader? On the one hand, his personal leadership ratings are higher than his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. 
and he has done much to tackle anti-Semitism and refresh the party's image with his new management slogan. But to others, he has not pushed ahead in the polls, still vying with the Conservatives, and he is not offering a distinct enough critique of the government's policies. The left wing of Labour are increasingly agitated about his position, particularly when it comes to cultural issues and patriotism. This is what Clive Lewis, a left-wing Labour MP, said on a recent YouTube discussion with Navarra Media. There seems to be very little of substance about what the Labour Party stands for and represents. Uh, and I think to try and kind of short-circuit that and start talking about flags and Remembrance Sunday, it, it, it's, it's just not a substitute. Well, Robert Shrimsley, this has been the topic of your column this week, and you've argued there's no shortcut for Keir Starmer to get Labour back from the hole it entered in the 2019 election when it lost all those seats to the Tories for the first time and put itself very far away from power. What do you make of the critique of Clive Lewis that Keir's actually not being distinctive enough from the Tories? I think that what we're seeing is a couple of phenomena underpinning some of the criticisms. The first is people are just beginning to come to terms with what a long, hard slog opposition is. You know, in the first year, you've got a new leader, they're doing things, there's a bit of a tension on you. And then you suddenly look out and you've got another four years of not being that important to the debate and having to grind your way back in and discredit a government which is proving quite able to keep its own base in line in spite of this extraordinary pandemic, which feeds to the second thing, which is that the rage of people against Boris Johnson and the anger and the frustration that people aren't more angry with his handling of the pandemic is blinding a lot of Labour people to the fundamental long haul they've got and to the big electoral shift that happened at the last election and how far a climb they have back. And then I think the third factor feeding into this is the displacement of the Corbynites and the Corbynite left within the Labour Party. He has pushed a lot of them out. He has rounded a lot of them. And in fact, his only big message since becoming leader is that the party's under new management and it's different. And they're already, I think, fighting for the narrative after Starmer, because, you know, it's quite hard for Labour to win the next election, even if everything goes perfectly for it. It's a very, very big mountain to climb. And so there is the construction of an argument that centrism doesn't work, that the soft left doesn't work, that you have to revert to the kind of ideology that Jeremy Corbyn was pushing. And I mean, the flags issue is a very good example of this, because we have a report suggesting you do a bit more to look more patriotic and professional, you know, have flags in the backdrop, wear smart suits, this kind of thing. And everyone is jumping up and down as if he thinks it's a path to victory. And it's quite the opposite. What he understands is it's a precondition for victory, that actually people at the last election thought Labour wasn't patriotic enough, and that what he is trying to do is ease the negatives so they will give him a hearing when he starts having things to say. Well, Sienna Rogers, great to have you back on the podcast. What's your sense about the feeling within the Labour Party about this? Because you've had some very vocal people on both sides here, the likes of the left and Clive Lewis and Richard Bergen, MPs who are prominent during the Corbyn era, saying that Keir Starmer is failing as opposition leader and he needs to be much tougher on the government. But then you've had other people like Carolyn Harris, an MP who's a key ally of Keir Starmer, saying these people just basically need to shut up and go away, to quote Gavin Williamson. How big of an issue do you think this is? Well, usually I like to assess the Labour leader, all politicians, but on their own terms. And during the Labour leadership campaign, he really set out his core objectives as being party unity, professionalism, 
and electability. Now, obviously, electability, we don't know yet. But in terms of party unity, that definitely has not been fulfilled. I mean, the Labour Party is as divided as ever. And they're having incredibly fiery meetings all of the time, both on a local level and on a national level. So it seems that perhaps these objectives of Keir Starmer's have changed. But, you know, we don't have much clarity on that because he's not running a leadership campaign. So he's been incredibly strong on internal party management. I think we can say that for sure. I mean, the Labour left, a chunk of which did back here, and even more were kind of willing to accept his leadership based on his campaign promises, which obviously were very much pitching to the left. They wanted to work with him. They were hopeful that those promises would come through. But then Jeremy Corbyn was suspended, let back in, suspended again. Now there's this very hostile relationship between the membership on that side of the party and the leadership. And then a couple of weeks ago, the Labour right, in those terms, in the PLP, started briefing against him, saying, you know, he's not setting out a vision, he's not political enough. I mean, we have to remember that Keir Starmer only recently became an MP, and he's not been steeped in factionalism this whole time. And very much during Jeremy Corbyn's era, he was not the grumbling backbenchers complaining to the press and each other about how everything was going. He was very much keeping his head down, getting on with the Brexit brief. And that's part of the reason he ran the leadership campaign, but it also means that he had very broad appeal on the PLP, but it was very much on a kind of terms of being colleagues with these people rather than friends that you'd hang out with in strangers' bar in Parliament and complain about the leadership. So I think some of those tensions now are, are coming through. One of the things I think is frustrating people on that side of the party is that he is not jumping up and down about Brexit all the time, that he agreed to vote for the withdrawal bill on the grounds it was better than no deal, that he has parked a number of the issues around Brexit, like free movement of people. And I think they feel he was back because he was such a strong Remainer, and he hasn't delivered for them on this. And I think this is a fundamental tension between those who understand the long haul and those who don't. It's very clear that Keir Starmer's approach to this is, we've got four or five years to get ourselves into position, and we do not need to fight all our battles in year one. We've actually got time to see how things play out and put ourselves in a position to win the next election a bit closer to it. Well, Keir Starmer has defended his position on this. Speaking to the Press Association this week, this is what he had to say. The vast majority of our party and our movement are behind what we're doing. They know we're in the middle of a pandemic. They're also saying, quite rightly, that at the end of this, we can't go back to business as usual. We need to build a better future. And that's what I'm absolutely focused on. So, Sienna, one thing that I think is going to be a real problem for Keir Starmer is going to be economics, because obviously you've got this Conservative government that is spending like no Conservative governments have ever done before. And we've got the budget coming up in a couple of weeks when Rishi Sunak is going to begin to sort of level with the public in terms of fixing the public finances and what have you. But it's very clear it's not going to be a George Osborne-esque return to austerity by slashing public services, because one, Boris Johnson doesn't like austerity. And when he was mayor of London, we or that he much prefers to spend money. And two, all those red war seats in Labour's lost heartlands, those are the places that are going to be most badly affected if you cut public services and the places Johnson needs to win again. So it's quite clear the Tories are going to move significantly to the left, which leaves Starmer in an interesting position. Do you go even further to the left and get into the realm of things like wealth taxes, which give an opening for the Conservatives? You know, what sort of economic critique is he going to be able to offer when the goalposts have moved so much due to COVID? 
I do think it's tricky for Labour that even if the Tories continue to implement austerity by the back door, for instance, local government is in serious trouble in a lot of places and they're desperate for more funding, but they argue that they're not getting it. Even then, in terms of practice, they may be implementing austerity, but they're not going to be using that rhetoric. That's for sure. We know that Boris Johnson doesn't like that. He likes to be popular. So I think Labour so far has really been talking, especially over the past week, about how it's going to be unashamedly pro-business. That's what the head of policy, Claire Ainsley, in Keir Starmer's office, has said that they have to be. So she's also said it's going to be rooted in the bread and butter issues facing people across the country. I think that's a good sign. I think The Labour critique really needs to reflect who has been hardest hit by austerity and the gaps in COVID support in particular. I mean, for instance, the self-employed. Tories have basically betrayed their natural constituency because of this three million excluded from COVID support. And this is a huge opportunity for Labour. I think that is very much recognised because more and more Annalisa Dodds has been talking about the self-employed. And then at the same time, they've got this other track going, which is that Rachel Reeves, who shadows Michael Gove, she's really been talking about cronyism. Now, she's quite close to the GMB union and she has a GMB staffer came to work in her office. And this has really influenced their agenda on this. So I think if they combine that support for business with this talk about cronyism in terms of Tory friends and VIPs and those big corporations where they argue that actually the contracts aren't appropriate, I think they could be onto a winner. But there is no doubt that the messaging from Labour is going to need to be a lot clearer and frankly less boring than it has been so far. Now, Robert, let's just go back to this issue. You mentioned flags before, and this gets into the cultural issue, which I think is just as important as the economics, because the fact is that one of the reasons Labour didn't do so well, I think, at the last election was this feeling that the party's leadership was quite disconnected from the values of its traditional heartlands in Northern and Midlands England. And this leaked research came out quite recently that said Labour basically needs to hug the flag, be a bit more patriotic and give voters the sense that it feels the same way they do about being proud to be British. And I think we will see a bit of a test of this in the local elections in May, where there's hundreds of councils up for grabs, significant mayoralties in places like Tees Valley in the northeast of England. And I think that will be a test for Starmer about whether he's moved enough on the cultural stuff to speak to those people again. Yes, although I mean, I think fundamentally the biggest test in the local elections will be how people are feeling economically. I mean, I just think, in a sense, the extent to which people were angered by the conversations about the flag are indicative of just how far some in the Labour Party have moved away from where they need to be. I mean, this issue, is, it's rather like the Tories and the NHS. It's an area where you're not trusted by a section of the voters you need to win, and therefore you need to win them back. Because the voters, by and large, don't pay lots and lots of attentions to policies. They're not particularly interested in rows or cronyism or whether you're going to have a particular policy on small business. They make an assessment of whether you share their values. They essentially believe all politicians are liars. They don't believe they're going to meet their promises. So they look at them and say, are you like me to do the right thing when an issue comes up? And under Jeremy Corbyn, they didn't think that. They've only thought it once in the last 40 years, which is when Tony Blair was leader. And it's always a mistake to try and ape previous leaders. But the premise of actually saying, I do care about the things you care about, and you can trust me with them, is a wise policy. And I also think the other issue for Labour is the Conservatives are clearly using culture wars as a wedge issue to separate the Labour Party membership from its potential voting base. And there are lots of issues in there around prejudice and discrimination, where the Labour Party wants to push forward and do the progressive thing. And I think that becomes a lot easier for Labour 
if it's trust on other areas like defense of the realm, law and order, all those other areas which it feels uncomfortable talking about, but which make a difference to the voters you're trying to attract. Because there's an awful lot of poorer voters who are also socially conservative. And you do have to get them back. And finally, Sienna, let's just look to Scotland as well, because this also feeds in to Keir Starmer's leadership, that Richard Leonard, who was the left-leaning leader of Scottish Labour, was pushed out after much unhappiness about his leadership. Sienna, can you tell us what's going on with the contest there, who's likely to win and how this plays into Starmer's hopes? Yes, you're right. Just mere months before these Holyrood elections which are going to be very important to the UK's constitutional arrangements, there's now a Scottish leadership election for Labour. So we've got, on the one side, Anasawa. Now, he's considered as being quite close to the UK leadership. He ran in 2017 against Richard Leonard and obviously lost. But this time he's running again, and he actually has gained the most nominations from MSPs, from Labour's one Scottish MP, from councillors, affiliates, local parties. And those kind of nominations are usually very highly indicative of who's actually going to win the race. They were for Keir Starmer, for instance, last year. And then on the other side, we've got Monica Lennon. So she's very much seen as to Anna Sawa's left. She's known for her period poverty campaign, which was successful. And, you know, she got something through in terms of legislation from opposition, which is quite an achievement. She also broke the whip in 2019 in order to abstain on an SNP bill in favour of another independence referendum. So she is very much taking a different approach to the constitutional question, which Labour is divided over. She wants a kind of Devo Max option on the ballot paper if a vote does go ahead. She doesn't support independence, but she's got a more nuanced approach to the whole thing, whereas Anasawa definitely aligns with Ian Murray and the position that Keir Starmer now takes, which is Labour has to be very, very clear in its complete opposition to another referendum. And between those two candidates, you said that Anasawa is ahead in terms of nominations. Is it your feeling that he's the favourite at this point? He knows he's got the people who are already sympathetic to him on his side. He's trying to broaden his appeal in the party. And it looks so far as if he will be successful in that. He's definitely got more name recognition as well because he did run last time. It's certainly a race to watch. Robert, very quickly and finally, we're still quite a long way off from the next election. But do you think there's a trajectory from where we are now where Labour can win next time? I think it's extremely difficult. You know, they are a long way back and they've got to reclaim a lot of ground. But we are in a very, very difficult economic situation. We're coming out of a pandemic. We've still got Brexit. There's an economic retrenchment to come. The Tories are going to have to choose between tax rises and spending cuts. An awful lot of things can go wrong to make this government unpopular. So the fundamental point for Keir Starmer at this stage is to make himself electable. I think he could definitely do with injecting a bit more charisma and humour into the way he works and critique aggressively when this government starts to screw up. I think the odds are still against him, but we are in unprecedented times, so we don't know where we'll be in two or three years. I would also agree that he needs to inject a bit more charisma. I know that Keir Starmer has personality. I've seen him get angry. I've seen him get passionate. I think a lot of the time he's kind of suffering from the problem that Ed Miliband suffered from during his leadership. Under so much pressure, the personality is just being repressed. And it means that when they do media appearances, they just come across as kind of uptight and sometimes a bit awkward when actually they do have a personality. And he needs to, unlike Ed Miliband, who waited until after his leadership, actually express a bit more of that now. Robert and Sienna, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. 
If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all your usual places to receive your podcasts. And if you do like this, then you can leave us a positive rating or a good review. We'd love to hear your comments. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Louise Burton and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.